the National Archives podcast series. Charles Dickens, Warren's Blacking and the Chancery Court, presented by Michael Allen. Thank you very much for coming to listen to the talk. What I've got to say to you today is all new information, a lot of new information. This is new research that you may have well have done as, just as I did, but it's, it's rel relative to uh, Charles Dickens. Now, Charles Dickens was born in Portsmouth in 1812. He was the son of a pay clerk in the Navy Pay Office and his father, John Dickens, was moved from Portsmouth to London in 1815 and from London to Chatham in 1817. It was at Chatham that Dickens had the happiest years of his childhood, much of which he later recalled in his writings. His father was quite well paid uh, and the family considered themselves to be genteel. His mother taught him, including some Latin. He went to school and he did well at school. He was taken to the theatre, he had books to read, he made friends and he had brothers and sisters around him. There were two servants to help around the house. His health wasn't robust, but he was happy. Then, at the age of 10, he and his family were moved back to London. And Charles Dickens' life took a nasty turn for the worse. To start with, he wasn't sent to school, but he was left to help with household chores and to run errands. In London, he overheard his parents talk of a crisis in their financial situa situation. On a grim day for him, a cousin by marriage offered employment for the boy, working in a boot blacking factory, which his parents accepted on his behalf. Eventually, his father was arrested for debt and was sent to the Marshalsea prison. The home was sold up and the family, but not Charles, moved into the prison with his father. And you would have heard of this repeated in, in Little Dorrit. John Dickens was released from prison about three months later. He wasn't there for long and he eventually he took his son away from the blacking factory and he sent him back to school. After that a veil was drawn over the whole sorry episode. Dickens later wrote my father and mother have been stricken dumb upon it. Dickens himself together with his brothers and sisters colluded in the silence. As he grew to be famous and well-loved with a large circle of friends and a large family of his own children, still he held close to his chest the hurt that he had suffered as a child, keeping it from his public, from his acquaintances and even from his own sons and daughters. But 25 years later he wrote it all down. He shared with his wife what he had written but with nobody else and he passed his secret to his friend and designated biographer, John Forster. Only after his death in 1870 was the whole sorry episode exposed, coming as a profound shock, not only to his worldwide audience, but also to his stunned children. By then, there was only one version of the story, Dickens's version. His parents were dead, as were all but one of his brothers and sisters. Nobody else could, or at least did, corroborate or contradict his story. Q, Q, the National Archives. Brief Marshalsea prison and insolvency court records of John Dickens' imprisonment 
have been in the public domain for some years, held by the TNA. And about 25 years ago, I turned up Admiralty letters and accounts relating to John Dickens, which were published in my book, Charles Dickens' Childhood. But then, last summer, I discovered something new. When I say something new, what I really mean is something old. In the proceedings of the Chancery Court. Now, there's no more appropriate place to find information relating to Charles Dickens than in Chancery proceedings. Dickens was scathing about the institution. As a youth, he was a reporter, and time spent writing up cases in Chancery established in him a feeling of contempt for the organisation. Then in 1844, when he was famous and a writer, those feelings were reinforced when he obtained an injunction from the court to prevent a pirated edition of A Christmas Carol. He won the argument, but lost the costs, when the pirates decided to declare themselves bankrupt. He found himself out of pocket by the considerable sum for those days of £700. But his most famous attack on Chancery, its expense, its tangled bureaucracy, its slowness, came in, in uh, Bleak House and in the case of Jarndyce v Jarndyce, which dragged on for years. However, frustrating though the proceedings of this ancient court may have been to those who had to go through them, they have left the National Archives and us with a rich treasure of social and economic history. The millions of chancery documents held at TNA open a window into the lives and worries of people from the 14th to the 19th centuries. Now, I'm no expert on the subject, and the best guide through, the, through its complexities that I've found is the excellent Tracing Your Ancestors in the National Archive, and if you haven't got it, you ought to get it. Uh, this book tells us that, in summary, there are five main categories to the collection. The proceedings, which are statements made by the parties to each case. These, the names in the headings of those proceedings are indexed in the TNA online catalogue. Then there's the evidence, which is sworn by witnesses produced by the parties, decrees and orders given by the court in the progress of a suit, chancery master's reports and accounts, and final decrees and appeals. Now, documents in categories two to five listed there are not indexed in the T on the TNA online catalogue. But they can be found, with a great deal of patience, in handwritten contemporary indexes, which are here. The first item that I found was located in the first of these categories, in the proceedings. I wasn't looking for it. I had no idea it existed, nor did anybody else. It was dropped in my lap by that great friend of the researcher, serendipity. I was looking for one thing, which I didn't find, and I found something quite different. The case of Lamott v Wood. Lamott was a name I knew, and I was looking for. Wood, I didn't know. And it concerned two people involved in the manufacture of boot blacking. These documents are large in size, and long in content. Five pages the same size as this. Nearly 20,000 words in all. That's just to bring it up a little closer. 
very nicely written, very easy to understand, but uh, turgid nevertheless. Language is repetitive and difficult. They're stored off-site, this one in particular is anyway, uh, stored off-site, awkward to handle, difficult to photograph, and they're time-consuming to transcribe, but they're worth it. Now, boot blacking, or shoe polish as we say now, was big business in the first quarter of the 19th century. Poor conditions on pavements and roads meant that footwear needed constant protection, not just to look clean, but to maintain a degree of water repellence and flexibility. Many firms manufactured blacking in London, which was sent for sale not just throughout this country, but around the world. Many firms manufactured blacking in London. Competition was fierce. Charles Day, of the blacking firm Day and Martin, left £350,000 when he died in 1836. With money like that to be made, it's no surprise that there was great competition. Rivalry to Day and Martin came from two firms, among others, both called Warren's Blacking. Now, in the pleadings for the case of Wood v. Lamott, a first-hand history of these two firms is related. And this is the first time we've got a decent history of these two firms. There's been bits and pieces, but not very much. This is the first time we've had a really good history of these two firms, which had an influence on Dickens. The, pro the proceedings state that Jonathan Warren began to manufacture blacking in 1798, taking under his wing his brother Thomas, but the two fell out and Thomas set up on his own. When Thomas died in 1805, his, his son, Robert, took over the business and intense rivalry arose between Jonathan and his nephew, Robert, and it persisted for 20 years, exacerbated because they both promoted themselves as Warren's blacking. As early as 1808, Robert Warren placed advertisements like this in newspapers, warning against his uncle's product. It was quite nasty. In 1816, Robert Warren moved from his premises in St Martin's Lane to number 30 in the Strand. And a much was made of this address on the packaging and the advertising of his product. Then, in 1821, Uncle Jonathan managed to locate himself in premises very close by with the deliberately confusing address of 30 Hungerford Stairs, Strand, with 30 and Strand written large and Hungerford Stairs written small. And a whole new field of argument opened up between the two sides of the family. In September of that same year, Jonathan Warren placed a small ad in the Times seeking a partner. And 12 months later, he entered into an agreement with William Edward Wood with the unusual spelling of W-O-O-D-D, Wood. The agreement gave the new owner, Wood, all rights to Jonathan Warren's blacking manufactory, including continued use of the name Warren's Blacking, in exchange for an annuity of £250. Jonathan Warren continued to operate the production side of the business and Wood engaged a clerk to manage the office. The office clerk was Sandhurst-trained George 
Lamet. The coming together of Warren, Wood and Lamet was a strange mix. Jonathan Warren was the old hand, Wood was aged just 25 and Lamet was only 20. Though now owned by Wood, competition between Jonathan, Warren, Jonathan Warren's Blacking and Robert Warren's Blacking continued as it had done for 20 years. At the beginning of 1824, the business was moved from Hunkerford Stairs to 3 Shandos Street, Covent Garden. Not very far, very close together, all of them. Then on the 21st of August, 1824, Jonathan Warren died. And the following small item appeared in the newspapers. Sudden death this morning about, well, you can read that. Fell forwards on some bottles in the shop and expired. They don't write newspapers like that anymore. At the time of the death, Wood was in Ireland and Lamott found himself running everything by himself. The younger man taking the burden of the responsibility was the cause of an argument between Lamott and Wood, erupting in October 1824, and they parted company. Three months later, in January 1825, Lamott had set up his own blacking business, located in Whitechapel, and Wood had moved away from Covent Garden to Noble Street, near the city of London's Guild Hall. All of this activity that I've described to you is described in the pleadings. Most of it we didn't know before. Most of it did not appear in Dickens' version of the story. The Warrens' blacking rivalry subsequently took on a bizarre twist. Robert Warren continued to advertise his genuine blacking. Wood advertised the strapline he had bought of Jonathan Warren's original Japan blacking. And Lamott set up with a logo, manufacturer to the late Jonathan Warren. Labelling of the three uh, products of the three companies and their advertising was so similar it could only be intended to confuse the customer. Such a situation, not surprisingly, ended in the Chancery Court. With Wood seeking to restrain Lamott and Robert Warren seeking to restrain both Wood and Lamott. And sitting innocently in the middle of this tangle, unhappily sticking disputed labels onto pots of disputed blacking, had been a very young Charles Dickens. That's uh, an afterthought of Dickens in the Blacking Warehouse. This wasn't drawn or published until the 1890s, until people obviously knew about it. So it didn't happen at the time. So how does the discovery of the documents at Kew impact on our knowledge of, of Dickens' childhood? Now Dickens had a widowed aunt who lived with the family when they were in Chatham. His mother's sister Mary, this was. And in 1821, while they were at Chatham, Mary remarried, this time to somebody called Matthew Lamott, an army surgeon. He also had been previously married and had children, one of whom had attended Sandhurst and, while waiting for an army appointment, spent much of his time with young Charles. Dickens described a, a lot how much he enjoyed the company of this son of his relative. Dickens called this cousin James James. Lamott. In 1821, 
Lamott was 19 years old and Charles was just nine. But despite the difference in age, they got on very well together. Now, when John Dickens was moved back to London in 1822, the young Lambert moved with them, moved with the family, and lived with the Dickens family for a while uh, and, until he was able to move on. For, for 140 years, Dickensians have written about James Lambert and his influence on young Charles. Both Dickens and Forster described him as the part owner and manager of Warren's Blacking, and as the man who, when he saw the financial difficulties of Dickens' parents, offered to employ the young lad in the Blacking warehouse. But the sworn chancery statement of George Lamott shows clearly that there was no James. The person that Dickens described as, and called James, was, in fact, called George. This threw me for quite a while until I, I had to work it out and this just must be one of those situations and I've come across a number, I don't know if you have, where a person prefers to be called by a different name from the one they were given. So his real name was George, everybody called him James. In, in Chancery Proceedings, this is an official document, he needs to give his proper name, George. All the other descriptions fit together once you make this link. The pleadings show that contrary to Dickens' account, George, or James, had no part in the ownership of Warren's Blacking. He was only the hired help, hired by William Edward Wood. And another Chancery document I found shows that one of Lamont's sisters, Hannah, was the wife of William Edward Wood. So, Wood and Lamont were brothers-in-law. And the decision by Wood to take Lamont to court must have caused tremendous tension in the families. Curiously, Dickens seems to have had no recollection of Wood nor of Jonathan Warren. They don't appear in his version of the story. Now Dickens' own account of his time at Warren's Blacking is a highly emotional account. He describes his separation from his family, who were in the Marshalsea prison, how he wandered the streets on his own, how he had to feed and fend for himself. He describes some of the people he worked with, including a boy called Bob Fagin. Uh, with unconcealed <coughs> detestation, he describes the premises at Hungerford Stairs, where the Blacking Factory was located. He says it was a crazy, tumble-down old house with rotten floors and staircase, dirty and decaying, with rats swarming down in the cellar. He describes the misery of a child with a vivid imagination carrying out a dirty, repetitive, dreary job from morning till night, eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night, ten hours a day, Monday to Saturday, washing and putting labels on thousands of pots of blacking. This seems to be the only one that survived. When we talk about pots, we might have a different idea of what pots were in those days, but they were, they were made, I believe, up in... Uh, Cheshire by the Wedgwood Company, uh, well, yes, the Wedgwood Company. They were actual china pots. They weren't uh, plastic or, well, obviously not. His detailed description of his work with labels is apposite, since those same labels also receive an inordinate amount of description 
in the pleadings. Every line and every word and every layout and every colour is described in the proceedings to show how one was trying, one company was trying to copy the other and to, uh, and to uh, put the others off. Now, just like that's the only, lab that's the only pot that I found that survived, um, so too are the labels themselves. Very, and it's only in the last uh, six to nine months that I've discovered these labels. Now, there is, there's a wonderful collection of uh, ephemera at uh, the Bodleian Library in Oxford uh, called the John Johnson Collection of Ephemera. And they've put all, they've put all that onto the web um, with the uh, illustrations uh, in this way. It's, it's, it's absolutely astounding how they've managed to survive in such pristine condition Considering what they were, they were just labels. I mean, they're just like, I suppose people today do, do have labels from the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, but to go back 140 years, it's uh, absolutely astonishing, 180 years. But these have survived, and you can see the sorts of labels that Dickens stuck onto the pots and the, the layout and the descriptions of those. The wording, just as I said it, the wording, illustration and layout of the labels is minutely described in the sworn statements. The similarities and differences of those produced by one branch of Warrens compared with those produced by the other two. And they, they made accusations against each other of intent to mislead and defraud the public to undermine the business of their rivals and to steal their customers. Advertisements, company agents sent out around the country, delivery men, they are all described in the proceedings as part of the cutthroat business of winning customers from the opposition. The pleadings throw light on another issue that has for years intrigued Dickensians. For just how long did Dickens suffer the drudgery at Warren's? Dickens himself wrote, I have no idea how long it lasted, whether for a year or much more or less. Biographers of Dickens and that includes myself, have calculated that he started within days of his 12th birthday, in February 1824. But the pleadings of George Lamett asserts that the blacking factory moved from its location in Hungerford Stairs before then, at the beginning of 1824, to this location in Shandos Street in Covent Garden. Now, in my book, Charles Dickens' Childhood, I calculated he remained at Shandos Street until March 1825. But the facts in the pleadings now make that impossible. My, my calculation has been what Dickensians, for the last 20 years at least, have based their understanding of how long Dickens was there for. I've had to change my mind. It couldn't have been March 1825 because Wood and Lammert broke up in September 1824, October 1824, so it couldn't have gone on as long as I said. Based on the evidence in the pleadings, I would now suggest that young Charles began his life of drudgery at the age of 11 and not at the age of 12 in September 1823, and that he was at Hungerford Stairs from September 1823 to January 1824, about four months, and then the move to Shandos Street uh, took place. Um, and he was taken out by his father in September 1824. So that makes the year that he guessed that he was there for. So why is all this important? Now as an adult, Dickens recognised that hardships endured in, that he endured in childhood 
help shape the sort of person that he grew up to be. He says this, he was resilient, he was self-reliant, he was determined. He observed and empathised with poor and vulnerable children. As a result, starting in 1837 with Oliver Twist, it was Dickens who placed children at the centre of novels, making them important, making principal characters of them. Dickens' books dealt with the damage done to children, their need for education and the effect on them of poverty. He created The Artful Dodger and the rest of Fagin's children in Oliver Twist, then Smike and the other boys at Do the Boys Hall, Nicholas Nickleby. There was Little Nell in The Old Curiosity Shop, Tiny Tim in A Christmas Carol, Pip in Great Expectations, Little Dorrit, the Gradgrind children in Hard Times, and most poignantly of all, David Copperfield, who, although the readers didn't recognise it when the story was published, was a very close reflection of himself. Dickens' time in a boot-blacking factory was transformed into David Copperfield's time in a wine-bottling factory. Nor was his concern for children confined to his novels. He gave speeches, he wrote articles to newspapers and letters to those with influence. He supported the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children and his near neighbour, the Foundling Hospital. He spoke out forcibly against child employment, lack of education, bad housing, bad health and neglect. So, these chancery pleadings and the new information they contain go to the very heart of Dickens the Man and the books that he wrote. The chancery pleadings dealt with in this article are rich in description of the blacking business, invaluable in the weight of information they carry and the colourful and colourful in drawing out the characters of the main participants. However, the proceedings that I described at the beginning are just the beginning of the court case. It's not till we examine the master's reports and certificates a bit further down that list that I showed earlier um, can the progress of the case be discovered. On the 9th of August 1827, one year after he brought the case, the court reported that William Edward Wood had not progressed the proceedings and costs amounting to 32 pounds, seven shillings and twopence were awarded to George Lamont. Then, three months later, Robert Warren was the next to go to Chancery, requested injunctions be taken out against both George Lamont and Wood to prevent them continuing in business. The, the injunctions were granted, uh, and, uh, but they were countermanded two weeks later. The rivals all uh, continued to compete for many years, but it was Robert Warren's business that had the greatest staying power, becoming in 1913 the Chiswick Polish Company Limited, the makers of cherry blossom polish and now subsumed into Reckitt Benkiza, PLC, which I think is located up in Norfolk. Now the repercussions from the discovery of these documents will have an impact on all future biographies of Dickens and on countless websites like to tell the story of his hapless childhood. Some first steps in a reassessment of this period are explored in my article New Light on Dickens and the Blacking Factory, published last month in the Dickensian. And there will be an article in the first issue 
of the magazine to replace Ancestors, published by the National Archives. And I'm told that's due in September. And that is the completion of my talk. This event was recorded live on the 24th of June 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.